You're listening to The Music Tricked Me, a podcast by French recording engineer Elise Mollet, where music insiders talk about their experience in the industry and all the tricks they've learned along the way. The Music Tricked Me Hi, Kath. Thanks for joining us on The Music Trick Me. Thank you for having me. You're a super busy person, and yet you didn't hesitate for one second to say yes for the podcast, which I greatly appreciate, and I'm really excited to talk to you today, so thank you. Uh, how are you doing? I'm really, really good, thanks. This is a bit of an early morning for me, working in the music <laughs> venue, but, you know, we'll muddle through. <laughs> Same for me. The good point of working in the music industry is that you can start working later. <laughs> <laughs> So just a little bit of a background story. We met during Ireland Music Week. You were doing the panel about management because you have your own management company called Mostefo. And from the get-go, I love so much the way you talked and you had such a positive energy in the room and the way you explained things was so simple, realistic as well, but also supportive. And I was like, oh yeah, I really want to have Kath on the show. And initially, I wanted to talk to you mainly about management, which is an important point for artists. Then I started reading about more of the other work you've done, especially the work in Future Yard. And I just fell in love with the whole thing. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, this is getting better and better. But before I get all excited, can you give the listeners a quick overview of your career, please? Yeah, I mean, the quick overview of the career is never a quick overview. But basically, um, I manage three artists that are based in Liverpool um, at the moment and also co-manage a music venue it, we're babies really in the grand scheme of things we didn't exist pre-pandemic so um, me and my friends opened a music venue in our hometown that we were born in Birkenhead which is a very tired town just outside Liverpool and um, we got the keys to the building in January 2020 in view of doing our first shows in April 2020 You can kind of see where I'm heading here. Then the world ended and we we weren't able to do anything. And it was one of those situations where we were just like, we'd lease the building. So we were just like, do we kind of give the keys back and give up with our tail between our legs? Or do we just kind of crack on? And we hope, like, thankfully, you know, we had the courage and um, the naivety maybe to crack on. So we put loads of funding in place um, did loads of kind of online activity during the pandemic. And then we've been open as a fully functional music venue for the last 18 months or so, which has been absolutely wild. But it's been a bit of a journey that's kind of got me to this point. So I like started off as an online PR back when the internet was being really underutilized in the way that we promote artists and social media was just social media. And it wasn't like, oh, what's your music strategy for social media? It was just like, that's how people spoke to each other. Um, so I was really, really lucky to kind of be involved in that area of the industry when it was really flourishing and there was lots of opportunities. And then through that, I became a product manager at Rough Trade Records. The role kind of changes from label to label. But for me, I was the person that was kind of sat in the middle of the album releases. So I'd be the one that kind of planned all the strategy with the artists. I would be the one that commissioned the videos and the photo shoots and things like that. I'd be the one that was the main communicator to the rest of the team and getting everybody really, really excited about like new signings of artists that were on Rough Trade. And 
I guess at that stage, I'd worked with a lot of Irish artists as well. So my relationship with like the Irish music industry is really good. Because when I was a PR, I was working with like Codeline and The Script and uh, Hudson Taylor. And then when I moved to Rough Trade, I was working with Soak and Gillibands. That was just the start of kind of like a flurry of signings of Irish artists by Rough Trade, like such as Lancome. And they've set up like a like a folk kind of sister label, which has kind of got more Irish artists on. But then, yeah, after Rough Trade, I moved up to Liverpool, which is, yeah, like kind of near where I'm from. Um, not as a career decision, more as like a family decision. Uh, family needed some support and I kind of like had a bit of an epiphany that London is the most expensive place on earth. And like the only reason why I was down there was for work. So I moved to Liverpool in 2016 and then didn't really kind of jump straight into music straight away up here. I didn't want to be that um, dickhead from London that's kind of gone, this is how we do it down there. But like wanted to really get to know what it was like working in a regional city and what the local scene was like and what the challenges were, what there was already, what value that I could add to what was going on. So I kind of worked in the wider arts for a few years and then got a teaching gig at Lipper, which is like the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts. That was the kind of thing that kept me working with artists when I was still trying to find my feet. And then in 2018, that's when I set Most Defo up, which I always kind of set up as a management company to work with a small roster of artists, but also to be that kind of like experienced and positive voice in the local music scene, to be the, like a bit of a myth buster. And so that like, I was somebody that local artists could kind of come and speak to about their release strategy or like different people in the industry that they'd been approached by, or like, should I sign that contract? Just to have somebody that wasn't gatekeeper-y or like agendered. And then we ended up, you know, talking about setting up the music venue and it was very obvious what my place would be within that. And it was an extension of that. I always wanted to do loads of artist development stuff where I brought really, really cool people from the music industry to Liverpool to meet people and like just grill them about what they do and how they work. And like, I kind of guessed that I wanted to show people the more ethical side of the music industry and that the way that music, the music industry has been presented historically is like quite archaic and everyone's just like working hard and looking after each other. But I think you do have to uncover those people and show them to people. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. And Future Yard, thankfully, is doing exactly what it's supposed to. And it's that vehicle that allows me to do that on a bigger scale. So that's a bit of a kind of flyby of like the last 17 years. (laughs) (laughs) That is exhaustive. Thank you very much. (laughs) And that summarizes everything I want to talk about today. Uh, but before I go to that, I was just curious, when did you start music? Were you a musician yourself? What kind of age were you when you started music? I wasn't a musician. Um, I went to Union Sheffield as just a kind of something to do. So left like the Wirral where I'm from um, when I was 19 and just like had a go at uni, didn't like it, worked in a nightclub. So I'd already kind of like by the time I was in my early 20s kind of appreciated that I was always with musicians. I still just didn't know what to do. So I trained to be a nurse when I was like 22, 23. I think I'm from quite a kind of working class traditional family where it's just like you just need a career. You just need a job. It doesn't really matter if it's not something that you're passionate about. It's just a job and then you Mm -hmm. live around it. And so I trained to be a nurse and then... I think I was like three months from, three or four months from finishing. 
And I'd already started putting gigs on, like just no, like no fear about it whatsoever. Just like everyone else is putting gigs on, I'll just put gigs on. So I used to put gigs on of bands that I wanted to watch that weren't coming to Sheffield because Sheffield's such a small city. And um, yeah, about four months before the end, I went to a roller disco that was put on by two of my favourite bands. And I stacked it square on my arse and fractured my coccyx. So I got signed off for like, yeah, I, broke, I basically broke my bum bone and got signed off um, for like six weeks, which would have taken me pretty much like, you know, through most of my final placement. So I ended up kind of having a bit of a moment during that period where all my family were just like, you don't want to be a nurse. Like, you don't talk about it at all. All you talk about is these bands that we haven't heard of. Like, you should do that. And I did just kind of like not go back. And um, I tried to get as far as I could in Sheffield. And it was just always in the live arena. It was always looking at promoters jobs or like anything like that. And in the end, I just moved to move to London. I got transferred from a pub that I was working in down to London and just like was very immersed in, in like the music scene because it was a music pub. It was the Lock Tavern in Camden, which is like at the time was like the center of kind of the the musical universe. I had a little 80 cap room upstairs where like the Arctic Monkeys and Adele and like Florence and the Machine were doing secret sets. It was just chaos. Um, so I worked there and like, basically it was when interning wasn't illegal. And um, I was just firing my CV out to like so many people. And my CV read like loads better on paper than it was in real life. So it was like done this gig and have like, pr- like, you know, DJs at Club Enemy and like all over the, like loads of stuff like that. Yeah, I just read better on paper than I did in real life. Like based on like the actual experience that I had, I didn't have any. And then I got offered an internship at Domino Records and it was full time and I was working full time in a pub and it was just like, how on earth am I going to do this? Like there's just no feasible way of me doing it. And my boss at the time was just like, it's going to be hellish, but we'll just put your hours around your internship how long is it? And I was like, it's four months. So I ended up doing that. I'm basically working like 90 hours a week for for like four months, like without a day off. Yeah. And then, but it was amazing. Like Domino at the time was like all on one floor of this warehouse and all of the different departments were sat in like little islands. So you could basically like as an intern, if you were there for long enough, you could track a whole album release you know, with the different departments. And I had absolutely no idea, like, of roles outside A&R. So for me, it was just, like, that was the thing that changed everything. And, like, if I hadn't have done that, if I hadn't, if somebody hadn't let me in and, like, basically showed me exactly how a label operated, I, I wouldn't be doing what I do today because I wouldn't have no idea of the structure of anything. And I just asked loads and loads of questions. Like, I was just, I was an absolute nightmare for it. I was sat on the press table during um, the Arctic Monkeys' third album, Humbug, during that release. And every time the head of press would get like a phone call in, as soon as she put the phone down, I'd be like, who's that? What are they doing? What do they want to do? What are you going to do? And she just answered. And like, I saw her years later and I was just like, I'm so sorry, I was a bit of a pain. And she just went, no, that's exactly what we want. And I think that's just exactly what you need to do. If you don't know what you're supposed to be doing in the music industry and you do get, you know, like an opportunity like that, don't just sit there and let it happen all around you. You've got to ask every single question under the sun. Otherwise, how are you going to then be prepared for the next opportunity that comes? And it's just, you've just got to be that person that's a bit, a bit of a pain. 
you know, be dead nice and be really, really helpful, but get what you need out of it as well and ask loads and loads of questions. Words of wisdom, words of wisdom. (laughs) Every opportunity you can get in the industry can get you to your next opportunity and at least you build your vocabulary, your knowledge, your contacts. It's great. It doesn't matter if, if the first opportunity you get isn't the ideal scenario for you as well. It's for you to feel out. Like you just kind of got to like when you're going into like spe- any any person that you speak to in the music industry, you know, you're going to get a feel for what they do if you ask the right questions. And I think it is just kind of like making sure that you're very aware of the way that the industries operate and where those gaps are. It, it's fine to not know what part of this industry that you're suitable for or that you want to work in, but get into it and then start asking questions of the people that are around you. Like, what's your job like? What do you do? What's your day to day like? And there's always people that are going to help you and answer you. I ended up with a really, really great mentor um, who was like a marketing manager at Polydor called Liz Goodwin. And um, she was the one where I like basically rang her like one evening and just went, right, this isn't work related, but can I ask your advice? Um, I want to be a product manager. How do I do it? And she literally started screaming down the phone at me. She was just like, oh my God, I knew I wanted, I wanted to tell you that I thought you'd be a really good product manager and I didn't think you wanted to hear it. And we ended up going for a pint and she just spilled the beans on like the jobs and how she got into it and what she has to do. And yeah, gave me some really, really solid advice. And then, and then the job came up at Rough Trade and like, then I I just went for it and got it. So it's really important to kind of pinpoint those mentors, like those people that you like share values with, that you end up having a catch up before you have a meeting. Like those kind of people are going to be the ones that, become like the most important people to help you get to the next part and we still chat like she's she's boss like she's amazing and she's now general manager at Atlantic Records so you know you never know where people are going to end up either (laughs) (laughs) absolutely well you said so many interesting things I don't know where to start but on that specific thing of that solidarity and someone giving you a hand That's what I got in one of the videos where you chat about Future Yard. You say that one of your personal missions and the mission of Future Yard is to make sure information and knowledge that we gather is passed on. And I think this is such an important thing. And I want to talk about the training program and the mentorship program. But first, I think we have to start with explaining to people what Future Yard is and where it is, what it does. So can you tell us all about Future Yard, please? Future Yard's um, been in the works for a number of years. Um, like the Wirral is uh, just over the River Mersey from Liverpool and it's got a really rich music heritage, but it's not got its own music venue. Um, no one really knows what the Wirral is. It sounds like Narnia, like, but it's not. It's just like a it's it's the place on the other side of the river from Liverpool. And we had a conversation above a pub in in Birkenhead, which is like the main town nearest to Liverpool on the Wirral. And um, we had yeah we had a conversation in an upstairs room of a pub that my friend Craig organised, and it was. The local music magazine Bido Lito, which my friend Craig and my friend Chris ran. And the conversation was around music strategy for the Wirral. And Craig told it was just like, you need to come to this. And I'd only just moved to Liverpool. So I was just like, I don't really know what my place is here. But we were talking about if if Birkenhead had a music venue, would people come? Like, would bands and artists put it on their tour routing because it's not Liverpool? Like, and um I remember my input into that conversation was basically just like, you just need to look after people. 
like if you look at like Leeds Brews and Ale, like um and like Hebden Bridges like Trades Club, they punch above their weight with the artists that they have coming to them all of the time. The Trades Club in Hebden Bridge is like 150 capacity and it's in the Peak District in like the middle of nowhere. But it's got such an amazing reputation that when bands are on tour and they're playing like 400, 500 capacity venues, they'll play the Trades Club because they know that it's an anchor point on a tour where they're going to get looked after. They're going to have the most amazing time that the Trades Club's built up this amazing local community which come out, which come to gigs. And um, using those examples and also the fact that sometimes when you're on tour in the UK, people don't even say hello to you when you rock up and you lose in. Like, it's just like the bar is so low with like, oh, there's no budget for the support acts riser or like, no, there's no water. No, there's no tea. No, there's no food. No, you're not being paid very much. The bar's so low when it comes to looking after bands that are on tour. And it's something that everyone's looking at because since the pandemic, we're now holding mental health under a microscope with, with, art, with artists and musicians. So that was my input into that chat was just like, if we had a music venue in Birkenhead that looked after people, then people would come. Then we'd get, you know, people would book Birkenhead on their tour. And really, really luckily, that's exactly what we're doing. We do look after people. But as I said, the bar's quite low. So that initial conversation was like five and a half years ago. We did a festival in 2019 called Future Yard, which was basically to test the water. And it was incredible. And it was amazing. And the ticket data showed that there was people from Liverpool there. There was loads of people from the Wirral there. And a few people had travelled to it as well. And the lineup was amazing. And one of the focuses of the festival wasn't just music. It was the place, the heritage of the place as well. So one of the stages that we used was like this Birkenhead Priory, which is like 13th century chapel that used to be the first crossing, like the first ferry crossing over the over the River Mersey with the monks. And the, there's like a ruined kind of like chapel in it, in its place. We used that as the backdrop for an outdoor stage, which is then right next to Camelard's shipyard where they had, they were refitting a massive warship. So there was a big gray warship as a kind of like, you know, side backdrop of this stage. So, so we used all of the kind of, you know, we used the location to to its full extent. And our main stage was the Beckenhead Town Hall, which is in the middle of Hamilton Square, which is like grade one listed Victorian square with a massive town hall in it that no one has access to. So that we've got all of these people in Birkenhead, which is such a tired town, which is like mass deprivation, was supposed to benefit from EU funding. And then, you know, the rest of the country voted Brexit, so lost it all. And it's just like, it's it's one of those forgotten places. So if the people that live there have got nothing to be proud of, then like, how how are people going to aspire to have like happy lives and have ambition and stuff like that? So for us, it was really about kind of putting a spotlight on the stuff that Birkenhead does have. Um, so we started looking for venues and we found three. And the one that we've gone with is like the one that had the most potential for growth. We're a CIC, which is a not-for-profit which means that we're a community interest company, that everything that we make goes straight back into what we're doing. Because we're a CIC, because we have social impact and because we're, you know, like a community-led music venue, we were able to get funding, well, we were able to get a loan to buy the building in January 2021. And only 5% of grassroots music venues in the UK actually own their spaces, which means they're just constantly at risk. 
so for us being able to buy the building was that security that we needed to, to make sure that we stayed where we are and that there's no one moving us out so there's two strands three strands to what we do one of them is being a live music venue when we're 300 capacity and then alongside the music venue we also are a training hub so we run a program called soundcheck which is a training program that basically gives young people an introduction into live sound, live lighting and event management over a 12-week program. We've now developed that into what's called a traineeship as well, which is like pre-apprenticeship, which is for young people that have got a few barriers in their life to, to, to employability, whether it's not getting the maths and English in school or coming from like foster homes or like having really poor mental health or even having like physical access needs. Anything that's kind of held them back in life, we work with them over an 18-week kind of full-time like traineeship, which basically introduces them to this world and they look at it and just go, what? <laughs> like, I can do this as a job? And you're like, yes, you can. <laughs> um, which we've seen successes in already, like massively, like most of our team have done our soundcheck programs. And then we've got other people that have done it working around different parts of the country as well, which is mad. So we do we do sound check, and then the other the other pillar of what we do at Futureyard is our artist development. So we were able to build five rehearsal studios in our basement, um, and we've got plans to do another fourteen, I think, on the, in our new extension. Yeah, um, and then and then on top of that, we run a program called Propeller, which is totally free to access, which is artist mentorship, and workshops, masterclasses, creative opportunities like the, the full shebang it's a bit of a one-stop shop of everything that an emerging artist or band needs everything's like super informal super friendly we try to kind of be as open and as ethical and like really look after people and encourage other people to look after each other as well um there's no hierarchy when we're kind of introducing that there's just like everybody that runs an event works on an event is all on one level whether you're the event manager whether you're the sound engineer whether you're the band on stage we all just treat people with kindness and we partner with a local mental health charity as well called the Open Door Centre. So anybody that's struggling um, with anxiety or low moods, they just get referred straight away with no waiting list for mental health support as well, just over the road. So that's Future Yard. It's built on friendship first and foremost. I think if it wasn't, it would have been really difficult, particularly during the pandemic. It's it's me and three three really dear friends and then the team around us are just absolutely fantastic and we're just incredibly lucky to have them. But yeah, it's really exciting. When we, We're still babies, but um, I saw a photo like of us like a year ago and we look about 10 years older. So, <laughs> so a lot's happened in a really short amount of time. <laughs> wow, this is an incredible story. This is an incredible project. And I know now that people have heard the story around Future Earth, they will understand why I fell in love with it because <laughs> it just englobes all my favorite keywords. It's, you know, support and community. You say even in interviews, instigating positive change in the industry, all those things. And I'm just like, yes, it really echoes with um, the episode where we had Steve Albini who discusses supporting your local community so you can create that network around you. And this is what you say about Birkenhead, about valuing what's around us already. And the story of Future Art is incredible. And the innovation side of it is really interesting, especially in the context of that podcast, because I agree with you. 
it's about understanding what's happening in the music industry, staying on top of what's new. And that's what the podcasts is about so people can have more awareness of what's happening today. I'm just going to quote something that Future Yard co-founder Craig Pennington said in a 2022 video called The Future is Birkenhead slash Future Yard, published by Power to Change. Music venues have needed a kind of a paradigm shift for probably 20 years. That traditional model of a venue that opens at 7 o'clock and closes at 11 and shuts all day is dead. And the forces of gentrification and the way that the world has changed, the property values within city centers, and all of those issues that have seen us losing tens of music venues a month in this country. So I think we're going to find a new way of doing things. And I was like, yes, that is so relevant. Yeah, it's it's lived experience. It's it's massively lived experience. Both me and Craig, we have a music board in Liverpool City region. So that represents the whole metropolitan area of Liverpool, including the Wirral. Particularly during the pandemic, every single meeting that we had was about saving a venue. And there were so many venues that were in Liverpool that were struggling before the pandemic. And then the pandemic absolutely finished them off. So, so the whole landscape changed like in such a short amount of time of like our local like live music industry. So if you're if you're watching all of this happen around you and these kind of commercial entities like just not being able to survive, you're not gonna then replicate that model, are you? You're not that gonna then even look at doing things in the same way down the same route. For us, it, open and future future ads was always going to be about social impact. It was always going to be about how we could help the community. But it's so true what Craig says is that this way of kind of like looking at a music venue that just kind of like opens its doors, puts a gig on and then closes again is not sustainable. It's not, it doesn't make any sense in today's industry. Now, what we're trying to do is like really reimagine that role, what that role plays like of a music venue in its local community. What is that role that it plays? So we need to make sure that Future Art is everything to everybody. And it is there's loads of people that just know us as a beer garden because of when we first opened, that was all we were allowed to open. And that's fine. You know, if that's what people are interested in, there's people that know us as the place where they take their three-year-olds on a Sunday morning. There's so many things that we have to do, but the key thing for us is we have to ask people what they want as well. We can't just rock up and be this kind of like trendy, madly programmed venue that sells craft beer in a massively deprived area, we we know that we can't exist on that alone. And we have to kind of make sure that what we're doing reflects what people want and what people need around us. So we do spend a lot of time asking and our like, we have a really, really great network of different partners around our area that work with the community in different ways, whether that's local housing associations, the mental health charity, there's a local youth, youth club called Hive, there's all of these people doing amazing, amazing work around us. And we just basically work with them. Like, what do you do? And how can we complement that? And how do we not compete against it? Like, it's just looking at things differently, I think. And the biggest hope that I have is just it inspires more people to think like that. And to think we could just open this company or this business, or we could look at doing it in the CIC structure and, and putting something back into the community. Like, and Birkenhead needs it. Oh, my God. <laughs> you are definitely inspiring people. Me first. So, yes, mission accomplished. 
Um, and just let me know, you were saying that you are working with three other people in Future Yards. So what would be your roles within Future Yards? And do you have special skills? We're definitely special. I don't know if we're skilled. Um, <laughs> there was, there's four of us that founded it and now we're, we're surrounded by an amazing, amazing team. So there's, there's nothing that we can give ourselves full credit on. Craig oversees everything. Craig is just like, the way that I always sum Craig up is like, you know, if there's like an old building that you walk past every day on your way to work and it might be like an old theatre or something like that and everybody who walks past it goes, wouldn't it be great to put gigs on in there? And then there's like one person in every thousand people that actually does it. Craig's that person and he his like kind of, I guess um, his enthusiasm and his passion is really infectious because he's just, he's a bit of a Pied Piper. Chris is our like main communicator. So he's the one that kind of, um, he's he, he's like head of marketing. He's our marketing director, which I guess if you'd have said to him like five years ago, do you want to be the marketing director of a music venue? He would have just been like, what? But it's, he's got such a great eye for detail. And like, we've got really striking branding we've got a very kind of like, I guess, very distinctive voice. And that's what Chris is like, absolutely the gatekeeper of in the best possible way. Um, and then Hoggy is um, our booker. So Hoggy's the the fourth one of us. He was working at a music publisher called Centric before Future Yard, but it also kind of like runs a local record label that two of my artists released their early singles on and um, put nights on and put gigs on and booked bands. So he's kind of gone from doing everything quite ad hoc and kind of like DIY to doing it, like programming a room constantly. So the, you know, the idea that he has a room to to bring bands to in his hometown is just like insane to him. Um, And then, yeah, and then there's me that kind of looks after all of the training and the development and stuff like that as well. So that's the four of us. And then I would say that Z, who's our bars manager is is the other missing piece of the puzzle who obviously wouldn't have been in in place when we were setting everything up but Z's just like it's such an integral part has got an amazing ideas gets the local community really really well is constantly thinking about how we make things better for them and and then we just got yeah there's like 50 of us now like across all the different areas from like music tutors to sound engineers to event managers to bar team to kitchen staff yeah it's 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 mad (laughs) it's crazy wow (laughs) it sounds like a wonderful team I just love the collaboration aspect even in what you said earlier about asking the community what they need what they want I just love those hubs where people help one another and bring their different backgrounds and tastes it's what creates the best results and I say yes to all the positive changes we have mentioned And there's another cause I want to talk to you about because it seems to be in what you do as well is that you work with a lot of women like Propeller Mentors include Constant Keen, who is the founder of Tool Records, a woman led independent record label focused on working with and for underrepresented voices in music and Sophia Galpa. And I just wanted to ask, what are you hoping to see more in the industry for it to be more inclusive? Yeah, I think I think gender is just one part of it. And I think working at Future just made me appreciate that more. Throughout my career, I, I had a real struggle with the with the term women in music. 
didn't feel like it represented me. I didn't feel like I um, my experience was the same as a lot of the people that were talking out of it. But I think what I've come to appreciate as I've got older is that I look at a lot of stuff through rose rose tinted spectacles, and there was a lot of things that I was just like, oh, just get on with it. You know, I think it's it's that feeling of like being underestimated pretty much every day of your career is something that you can get kind of Stockholm syndrome a little bit and you just kind of get used to it. And the I think the idea that we can change that so that young women that are coming through the industry don't feel that they have to prove themselves every day of their life is a big thing. And it's something that I've always kind of like we've been really, really scared to embrace. And it's only in recent years that I've actually really, really appreciated my position my experiences and the experiences of others. And I think that's a huge thing. Like I was at an event on Tuesday last week and um, somebody from one of our partner organizations that's big, like like technical rather than kind of like community-based is more on the production side of things. One of the, one of the team there basically said something about never having to prove themselves. Uh, And, you know, their career has been a lot longer than mine. And I just thought that that was so tone deaf. There's a lot of people out there that are just, oh yeah, we've got more women working with us and they're great. But they don't get what the experience is like of a woman working in in an environment that hasn't been built for them, basically. And I think that was just, for me, this only happened last week and it's just, I can't get out of my head, is how somebody can turn around to somebody and just go, I've never had to prove myself, like never had to prove myself. I can't remember the context of it. And I turned around and just went, I've had to prove myself every single day for the past 17 years. And he just like, you know, when someone's face drops and you're just like, yeah, the realization's there. And you just like, you can't assume that everyone's experience is the same. But I do think, yeah, gender's just one part of it. I think that the industry as a whole is quite impenetrable for quite a few different people. And what we do at FutureYard is we have to make sure that those opportunities are there for the people that need them the most. Now, with our training programs, what we've got to deal with locally is that we've got lots of young men around us that are suicide risks, that have had very, very unfortunate upbringings that are totally unemployable, have just have got nothing to live for. So if we're filling spaces on a course, it's not all about gender parity. It's about who needs that space the most. I think that it's it's just, it's shifted my way of looking at things massively. And what I want to do is make sure that I produce allies. Is that, you know, it's it's all well and good that we bring lots of women into an industry, but if we've still got loads of fellas working in it that are absolute difficult dickheads to work with, what's the point? So so what I want to make sure that I'm doing is that I'm giving opportunities for women. I'm lifting other women, celebrating women's achievements, all of that stuff, but also making sure that there's the other people that are working with them, appreciate them and get that their experience is different to theirs. And I think that's what it is. And whether you're, you know, a young female that's coming into the industry or you're a young male that's had a very, very difficult upbringing and has been told that they don't amount to anything you're both going to have very, very distinct difficulties in entering into any career space. But what we've got to be is empathetic and we've got to appreciate that the people that we're bringing through need to need to not see things on face value, need to like support each other when, when they're stressed out and need to not make assumptions based on how people look and where people are from. And that's the big thing for me.
yeah, I think that's probably the best way that I can work as a woman in music and not go, my gender is the least interesting thing about me in the same breath. Like we're all built on our own experiences. We're all individuals and not every woman has had the same experience or dealt with it in the same way. I think it might've been, or had like the support network that other women in music have had. So we just need to look at things differently and just take everybody as individuals and treat everybody with empathy and kindness and appreciation and give people the support they need. So whether that's gender, class, like mental health, like whatever it is, that it's just an open playing field. I'm I'm just falling more and more in love with what you say, Kath. I agree with everything. It makes total sense. And I'm really hoping that there will be change in the sense that it's not going to be just women supporting women. There will be men supporting women. Yeah. I'm, I'll be honest. I'm sick of getting asked to do panels, talking about gender representation. And it's a room full of women. Like, I've just stopped doing it. Like, I've always been, like, really choosy about what I do in that arena. I don't want to keep preaching to the choir or like going, this is my experience. And then everyone go, yeah. And it's just like, doesn't do anything. What I want to do is make sure that everybody that's coming through, that's starting off in this industry, is just like not looking at those stigmas. It's not even like taking those stigmas into account. And it's just working together as a team. Like, and I know that's really idealistic. It's massively idealistic, but sometimes I just don't know how um, the kind of tick boxing exercise of looking at gender representation is really helping. We need to make sure that the people that surround those women that tick the boxes are supported. So rather than just like, yeah, like let's get loads of women working in live music, let's make sure that, that they're able to have families and they're able to kind of like do the things and fulfill their own ambitions, which might be different to mine. You know, like I had it recently where a member of our team was just like, She was just like, I wasn't ill yesterday. I had really bad period pains, but I didn't want to say to the lads. And I'm just like, they like won't give a shit. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And in a good way, like not in a kind of like, oh, you need to come in. They're just like, they won't think twice. If you just go, I've got really bad period cramps. Like they're not going to think anything of it. And she was like, really? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, no, like it's there's got to be a respect that everyone's lives are different and we've all got different challenges and if you do get wiped out by your periods for a couple of days that you've got to make allowances for that like there needs to be an understanding that there's different things that kind of affect our lives that that we need you know a bit of support and a bit of back off like leave me alone for a day <laughs> Yep. I, I talk regularly about this to my female friends and you sometimes you have to pretend you're not feeling sick because of your periods. And I'm just like, this should be a world where we can say it. But I think we're getting there. I think the positive changes are coming. Now, the real question is, you're working with Future Yard, you're doing the mentorship and the training. Where on earth do you have time to manage three artists? <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. It's a very good question. I have always been that person that needs to have multiple projects going at the same time. Um, I get really kind of fulfilled when I've got different things to put pop my head into. And that's the way that I've always worked. And I think that's working at a record label where you're working with like multiple artists on different campaigns is definitely a way of doing that. But for me, like having the artists is just like, it's dreamy. And I find that it's what keeps me relevant. 
as well when I'm putting together my artist development sessions and like I'm thinking about what we need to cover and what we need to do I'm experiencing the same thing as the artists at Future Yard with the artists that I manage so I know that if there's something that I'm like oh god I don't really know very much about that I should do a session on it basically and um yeah I think the two things are kind of intertwined for me so it doesn't feel like an extra job on top of it like obviously we were talking earlier about the fact that today I've booked annual leave off from Future Yard because one of my artists is announcing a single. That's a real kind of like, um, it's a lovely thing to be able to do is to just kind of clear everything out and put my head in that for a day. And I, I do kind of see that as a bit of a break. <laughs> like, it's weird. like, don't get me wrong. I do take proper breaks. I'm going to Copenhagen on Saturday for a few days. And like, I do kind of enjoy myself and I do make sure that I have quality time. But just being able to kind of set aside a few days here and there, schedule it out, it means that I'm able to just like work to a work to my own timeline where it doesn't feel anxiety ridden and it doesn't feel like I'm constantly chasing my tail because I just think ahead. And I was encouraged the artists that I work with at Future to do the same as well. Like this is the the other thing is that the fact that I manage these three artists as well as co-run Future Yards. I'm again, not in a dissimilar situation to a band that is trying to break through and they're all working full time. So so the kind of coping mechanisms and the kind of like time management mechanisms that I put in place for myself, I can also discuss with the bands and the artists that we mentor at Future Yard about how they manage their own time as well and how they make time to, you know, to send some emails to some festivals, to do some research into websites, to do this. I have to do that as well around a job. So I'm able to kind of program propeller like our artist mentorship program based around the stuff that I'm experiencing, the stuff that my artists are experiencing. You know, it's it just means that I'm a lot more informed about what I do. And also I've got to a point with my artists now where I've worked with them all for like pretty much three years and I absolutely adore them. You know, we talk about work-life balance and kind of, and the structure of kind of relationships that we have with artists as managers, but you kind of like do get to a point where you would fight for them. <laughs> like, you know, like they're really, really special and their projects are incredibly special. And I think the minute that I felt that I wasn't able to deliver what they needed, I'd pass them, I'd, I'd recommend other people for them to work with. I'd pass, I would pass them along, but I really feel with the, the three artists that I've got is that we have like real shared ambitions and shared values and it's totally deliverable. So, you know, I think if one of them had all of a sudden gone, right, okay, I want to sign to a major label and I want to tour the world playing arenas and stuff like that, then that would change the dynamic massively, but they're not those artists. They're artists that are wanting to tour and wanting to release music and wanting to grow their audience. But they're not wanting to do it in like a corporate environment or like kind of to get on that conveyor belt of like, I need to make content constantly and all of that stuff. They're just not those type of artists. And I think it, that's how it's, that's how I'm able to balance it. And they're very, very, very like understanding. Like there's that as well. Like they, they know that they benefit from what Future Yard does. I manage this amazing band called Iso and the Jinx who have just finished their debut album which they did with Daniel Fox from Gilliband and they've supported Bodega on like a you know sold out show they're going to do something bigger on the album and it'll be at Future Yards and it's just like we've got an amazing stage where the sound is fantastic 
it's a real place for opportunity and it's a real platform. So why the hell would I not put my bands in there if I just had them playing every other venue because of nepotism or whatever? Mm-hmm. I'd be, you know, cutting everyone's nose off despite their face. Like, it'd just be really stupid. To me, those three artists are as much part of Future Yards as I am. The two things have got a link. They've got to kind of feed into each other. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense whatsoever. I wouldn't have the time to do it. But mm-hmm. thankfully, the two things work so, so well. That makes sense. And it's brilliant. Do you want to remind us the three artists that you manage, please? Yeah, sure. I work with three very different artists to each other. The the bands that I mentioned, I saw in the Jinx, are kind of like a post-punky trio, very social commentary, quite dark, twisted stories. Yeah, they're really kind of like quite angular and spiky and scouse, <laughs> very Liverpoolian. But yeah, they they basically write really dark stories about like fictional characters but that often take inspiration from real life people. So I'm always like getting new songs and going, how's that happened? Where's this one come from? Which is really cool. And then the other two, I've got Natalie McCall, who is the artist that is releasing at the moment, which I've taken the time off to, to work on. And she is, she's been a career musician for about a decade and she's released her third album, which we did during the pandemic, which was incredibly stressful um, and she um, she's a quite a prolific songwriter. So she does a lot of kind of songwriting sessions with other artists and stuff like that. So at the moment, that's a real kind of focal point for her career because that's obviously a great revenue stream. So that's kind of what we're exploring massively at the moment. And then, yeah, she's, she got funding from Arts Council to basically shadow producers in London. So she's she's moved on to London for quite a while. So I miss her quite a lot. Um, but she's just been like, yeah, working with loads of different producers and she's self-produced the last two singles. So she wants to produce the next album. She's, yeah, she's incredible. She's fantastic. She's kind of alt pop, but she's a bit Fleetwood Mackey at the same time. So it's kind of like really contemporary, quite synth driven. But then there's like, when she plays live, there's like really, it, it means that she can kind of tap into different audiences, which is really great. And then the third one is Beja Flow which um, is this amazing alter ego of this amazing, amazing young woman. And Beja Flow is absolutely all-encompassing, artist in every sense of the word, songwriter, performer, huge voice, also an actor, life model, <laughs> illustrator, photographer, you name it, she does it. So, <laughs> so for us, like we've been really kind of finding our feet over the last few years to kind of work out how to flex all of those muscles like so how that we can kind of like get her to put the music first and foremost right the right at the forefront but then be supported by all of these other skills that she's got and so we've done all sorts of stuff like like a music video is like she's just her acting in it is incredible like it's so good and then like for the single that came out just before we like the pandemic hit we did a two-week art exhibition of like self-portrait photography, illustrations, poetry, video content, all sorts. So yeah, <laughs> she's again, totally different. And um, yeah, we're, we're just working on up to our next single as well. I think we're going to do an EP of just piano tracks as well. So yeah, lots of things going on, lots of things happening. All three of them are releasing at the moment or planning releases at the moment, which is not really a situation that I've been in before. Usually it's like two out of three and one of them songwriting and or one of them's, you know, prepping for something. But it's it's awesome. It's my favourite thing to do. And don't tell the lads at the venue this, but, like, releasing music is, like, my greatest... 
passion it's it feels like such a privilege to like help facilitate that for somebody it is genuinely the thing that gets me the most excited about everything I do so when I when I'm at work at the venue and an artist will sit in front of me and they're like right I've got a single plan Can, do you want to go through it I'm like yeah <laughs> like I get so excited when we've got artists that don't turn around and go yes yeah, so I'm releasing a single in a week you know, and they just don't do anything and like they don't support it and they don't do it and they just don't think they, they need to do anything. If I sit down with an artist and they're just like, right, I've got some songs and I've got some ideas of how I want to do it. Like I need some help. Then that is like my absolute sweet spot when people have got the material and they're not in a rush. Like, oh, I love it. That's my favorite thing to do is just plan, like help somebody plan it out properly. That's the big driver. And that's what makes it a lot easier to find time to do it is that my passion is literally like it's oh my god I love releasing well, yeah. <laughs> so scheduling and marketing around uh, releases yeah uh, and there are other things that managers do so what are the different roles that you have for your artists are they the same for each of the artists and can you basically give us a broad definition of what a manager is yeah I think the role of a manager is to put it bluntly to to kind of sum it up is we're here to kind of basically support and build an artist's career so if you think about it in the olden days it was all the business side of stuff it was basically how you bring the money in that's what a manager does the manager helps bring the money in for an artist they, they make sure that an artist is exploiting every single revenue stream that there is for an artist's career and obviously you know, with artists, the money comes in from different places. So we need to be over everything. It needs to be kind of making sure that the money's coming in from the publishing, from live, from from the recording, from merch. All of those areas need to be tapped into and make sure that all the plans that are kind of put together for an artist are tapping up all of those different places so that an artist has a career, basically. Um, I think managers all work very differently to one another. And I think we're all products of our own experience. And I think different artists need different managers. So, you know, when I first got into management, there was uh, two other artists that I worked with that I don't work with anymore. And it's never a failure. You've got to appreciate that it's such a personal, personal thing and that you might not be the right person that is the right fit for that band or that artist. So if I've got a band, for example, that like want to tour constantly, they would probably, you know, appreciate having a manager that was more a tourer. Like I'd, I'd got lots and lots of touring experience, whereas I don't. But my background is strategy and it's like releasing music and all of that stuff. So the artists that I work with, the, the biggest gap, the biggest hole that they need to fill is that they're not strategic in any way, shape or form. So you've got to kind of think about what it is as an artist or a band that you are. And what it is that you need a manager to kind of really steer and take hold of. I work with each artist in very different ways. They need very different support. And there's different levels of like conversation about certain areas that go into it with, with the different artists. It's just, I couldn't work with the three of them in the same way. And I don't, yeah, I don't know. It's just like, yeah, I've got friends around me. I think that's the thing about working in the mu in the music industry is that if you are doing one of those freelance roles, like management or like, you know, anything where you're on your own, it can be quite lonely. And I mean, I say this to, to our lot all the way on the bar, it's just like, don't do it on your own. Like, don't do it on your own. You don't have to be alone with this. 
is that if you've got people around you that have got the skills in areas that you don't have, have got experience doing things that you haven't got, ask them, like speak to them because there's always stuff and it works both ways as well. But yeah, I think it's just really important if you are an artist manager that you surround yourself with people that you trust and that have got the share, like similar values to you and that you can help them as much as they can help you. Yeah. And for the artists, it is kind of a gray area what a manager is and does because it can go from negotiating contracts to help with releases, touring, managing budgets, image strategies. Sometimes it's helping them with their mental health. So there is this broad, broad range of things that managers can do. So how can artists make sure that they find the right fit? Would you recommend them to go to a management company or to look at bands that they like and see who manages them? But then is it risky to have a manager who has someone who is similar to them? What are the tips you can give to artists in terms of finding the right fit? And can they also test the waters before they commit to be with a manager for good? I think, right, meeting managers is like dating. It's like you've got to kind of like give it time. Like you wouldn't marry somebody that you've only just met. So if you meet a manager and like they throw down a a contract in front of you, that to me is like the biggest red flag that there possibly can be because not only do you not want to be tied to somebody in case you don't get on with them, it's, it works the other way as well. You know, finding the right manager is like finding the right partner to share your life with because you need to trust them implicitly. You need to be happy that they're representing you in the way that you want to be represented to have somebody advocate on your behalf when you're not in the room it used to be that this like there was this old trope of what an artist manager was and it would be like this kind of like person that would sit you know in a record label boardroom and bang their fists on the desk the industry's changed we need to make sure that the people that are representing us are representing us in the in the way that we want to in the manner that we speak to people ourselves so i think that i think there's a big litmus test in like personality and like how much you feel that you can tell them so if you're if you've been working with a manager for you know finding your feet with them for a while and you still feel that you can't share where you're at you know from a creative standpoint from a songwriting standpoint or like you just don't you know you're not letting them in on your world for whatever reason then that's not the right relationship and I think with regards to actually finding a manager I mean it happens from so many different ways like there's artist managers in local communities and then there's like artist managers at big you know management companies based in in the capitals but like I think that looking at people's rosters is always a good idea and looking to see like you know the wheelhouse of what people work with but the the thing that you've got to appreciate with a manager is well it's not like a record label where a record label has got more capacity to sign artists because there's more people to work on it and you're only involved in one part of that artist's career my manager has to be over everything. So they're going to work with less artists. So, you know, like I worked with three and even before I'd future art, I didn't want more than three. And I was like, you know, I'd get tempted. I've massively been tempted by another project over the last few years, particularly when like, you know, kind of acquaintances or like um, friends of friends have put together something and they're like, we need a manager. And I'm always like, should I throw my hat in the ring for this? And it's not fair. Like I definitely don't have the capacity to take on somebody else. For a manager, when they're thinking about like taking artists on, I think if you go and watch a band and then you can't think of anything else for like the next, like, say if you went to watch a band on like a Thursday and you spent all weekend thinking about them and on Monday you had to email them, that's 
that's the sign that you need to pursue that band. And like, you've got to like, I think as artists and bands is question people's motivation for wanting to work with you. Like if you're at a point where you're, you think that you need a manager and that you're bringing, you're inviting managers to come and watch you and you're not going to blow them away. What's the point? You probably don't need a manager. I think what an artist and band needs to do is like build their project up to a point where there's something to work with. I like I know loads of like local young people that have gone into artist management and they're and they're managing artists before they're ready. And it's just like, what are you actually working with there? The band or, or the artist has to get themselves to a point where a manager has something to work with. So I think rather than questioning how do I find a manager? Because I do think that managers come to you as well. I think that's the best way of working with people in the music industry is you make yourself known and you make yourself talked about and exciting and people will gravitate towards you and they're the people that you want to work with. Imagine like going to a manager and going, oh, this label are interested in me and a manager's just taking you on because you're just about to get signed and they'll get a cut of your advance. You've got to question why people want to work with you. So it's always nice when they come to you. So I think, yeah, sorry, I'm really going around the houses with this, but I think rather than kind of like focusing on how to find a manager is like you should be focused on how you can build your project to a point where a manager wants to work with you and then the manager will come to you. Mm. That is an extremely irrelevant point. It's great. That's definitely something people should hear. And also what you said earlier about sharing similar goals and ambitions because everyone's definition of success is different for someone being successful will be signing to a major touring loads and for some people it will be collaborating with other artists touring in local venues so it is really important to define what as an artist you think is success and to find someone who is on the same wavelength as you yeah i think that that should be the like the first question that comes up in a conversation between an artist and a potential manager is like, what, what do you want to achieve with this project? Like, what is, what does success look like for you? Because if you've got a manager that works mainly in the major label sphere, they're not going to do well, you know, coming at it from a more DIY angle and, and like and a more independent angle. And likewise, if it's the other way around as well, like, I don't know if one of my artists turned around and just went, right, okay, can I get signed to a major? I don't know how comfortable I would be working in that environment for me personally. Like I've done it. I I don't know if I want to get back into that area of the music industry. So that wouldn't be a a good fit for me, but my artists, they're like, we'll self-release. But then if somebody comes up with a situation that adds to the experience and adds value to the project, then we will, like listen to it you know we'll consider it they're all happy to kind of just like self-release with me but if a label turned around and we're just like oh my god we really really want to release this we can press this amount of vinyl we can give you this money and then they're also like really fun good people to work with and that they would kind of lift that experience then we definitely consider it without a doubt but it's just like yeah you've got to make sure that those ambitions and those kind of like ways of working are aligned and that you've got the right person to deliver that. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for the input. That's uh, really, really interesting. And I'm sure people will appreciate all those tips. There is a bonus question that I wanted to ask you, which you actually touched on early on. And I was like, oh, she's ahead of my question. Um, 
it's about the connection with Ireland. When you worked in Rough Trade with Soak and Gilliband, who you still seem really close to today, and in Future Yard you had gigs with Sprints and Mail, and so was you from afar, Robocop recorded, you know, Melts. What's your connection with Ireland? It's just really good people, really good music. I think, right, I'll be honest, at Ireland Music Week, one of the things that did me add in, and I mean this in a really good way, is like, Every artist that I met over the course of that week were just like really savvy, really like self-starters, like really confident to talk to people and like putting themselves in in awkward situations where they're talking to strangers and trying to get them the most out of the situations, but in a in a really nice way and really just engaged with the whole process of like what a showcase festival is. And I see that as something kind of quite different to the to the English bands that I've faced. The attitude is just totally different. And I think there's particularly like, you know, the amazing artists and bands that are coming out of Ireland across so many different genres as well, all support each other and all lift each other. You can see that I went to South by Southwest in March and, you know, when there was an Irish act on, there'd be like three others in the audience watching them. And it's just, it's such a gorgeous environment to work within and also just to be present in. Yeah, I've just I've I've just always had a great time with with Irish acts. Like pretty happy are my favourites at the moment. I just think they're incredible. And like they were supposed to play at Future Yards with Altered Hours, like earlier in the year, and they weren't able to because one of Altered Hours tested positive. And I was gutted. I was like so, so sad I wasn't gonna watch Pretty Happy. And then I got to see them at Island Music Week and you know, we're looking at lineups next year that would be suitable to have them on at Future Yards. And I just think they're incredible. And I just think that, you know, they're from Cork and their accents in the in the in the way that they kind of, you know, sing and project is so present and it's so characterful. And it's just like you couldn't do it if you were from anywhere else. Like it does it there's so much kind of personality to to what they do. And I find I think that's really kind of infectious and it's really special. And I just think there's so many amazing Irish acts at the moment that are just absolutely blowing everyone out of the park. It's just like, yeah. And the fact that Gilliband as well, you know, they're three albums in and they're still that influential kind of amazing live like force and just the nicest people in the world is just like, that's incredibly special to me because I worked on their debut album with them. And um, to watch, you know, them go into this like album campaign and then to... And to see the impact that they've had on bands, not just in Ireland, but like in other places as well, on their music, where you're just like, loads of these bands just wouldn't exist if this band didn't do what they did so well. Mm-hmm. So I think there's that. I think there's just the, it's it's always felt like a real supportive entity. And I, yeah, I feel very privileged to be recognised within it. That is actually why I moved to Ireland as well. This sense of community and friendliness is just what strikes you so hard here. So yeah, I I totally agree. I almost forgot one of my questions. It's not as nice a topic, but I'm really interested to know your opinion on it because in one of your 2021 interviews, you said that one of the concerns for managers in the UK was Brexit. So how did that impact touring and releasing, et cetera? Oh God. (laughs) Sorry to bring the mood down. Oh, Brexit. Oh, my God. It's just, it's it's an embarrassment of a thing. It's just, 
there's no it doesn't get any easier talking about it because it's just I remember when the result of the referendum came out and I was at Rough Trade at the time and going in that morning and just being like what the hell has happened and not really kind of like appreciating the impact that it was going to have now that we've got the reality of the whole situation and that no one has benefited from Brexit absolutely no industry no individual no person has benefited from Brexit it's really pig-headedness that has put us into this situation and it is you know, it, it's it's politics that's the opposite of what the music industry stands for. And it's just really, 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 really disappointing that we've got absolutely no voice in this whatsoever. And, you know, it, it isn't just our industry, as I said, it's just like every industry is faced with it. But it's just, it's the knock-on effects and the, you know, the obvious things are there, like the visas and stuff like that, which is slowly kind of getting sorted with more and more, like, of the countries in the EU now allowing... Um, British musicians in but it's it's the costs it's the it's the yeah I don't, I don't know what where the light at the end of the tunnel is with this one unfortunately I, I'd say out of my three I saw in the jinx are the most affected by it because the nature of their music does really well in Europe that you know that kind of post-punky kind of thing does super super well in Europe and I think if you're a band like that you really really need that audience to actually survive so we we did Eurosonic, which is like the biggest live showcase for Europe, where all of the festival bookers are there, all of the promoters are there from, from all of the European um, festivals and venues and everything. And we did that in January 2020, and we ended up going into March 2020 with more EU dates than we did UK. Mm-hmm. And we were well happy with that because the fees were really great. The venues were amazing. The festivals were amazing. They were on really, really good bills that they play in front of like really amazing, amazing audiences. And there's just an appreciation. Like music is so much more appreciated in in the EU than it is in the UK. I mean, it's funded for a start. Like all of the, some of their fees were for community music venues like Echo and Utrecht. It's subsidized by the government. So they're able to bring all of these amazing bands and like, there's accommodation and they're being fed and like, you know, and the, and the fees are subsidized. Same as um, one of the Molotov in, in Hamburg. So we had all of this lined up and then obviously went into the pandemic and just had to kind of rearrange it, rearrange it, rearrange it. And then it got to a point when like one of the, one of the lads in, in an ISO was shielded because he's like, he's got Crohn's disease and, and was like, was on uh, medication to suppress his immune system. So, it took I saw a lot longer to kind of come out of the pandemic than it did other bands, and we were look and it was just like right, I need to revisit what it is that we had before, and just the looking at you know we we would have done those tours in the in Europe in twenty twenty and come out with a nice amount of profit, and it was basically reversed. You always do Europe because the fees are bigger and it kind of does buffer the UK tour where the fees are tiny. So you you need that, and it's just like it's totally gone. Like we would have lost money, a substantial amount of money. We would have had to get funding, like a substantial amount of funding, in order to have broken even on those on those um, EU dates, just because of all of the costs involved. It's just ridiculous. So it's really hard, say like sitting now, with a whole kind of release strategy for their debut album to think when to do those dates, when to do those things, it's going to be beneficial to the band massively. You just can't take risks anymore. I think that's I think that's a big point is like 
Brexit has kind of basically stripped the, oh, should we do that and see how it goes? Like, you just can't do that. And, and even just, like, shipping vinyl and stuff like that, there's still countries in the EU that have, ma- like, put in a massive amount of tax on at the other end. So the customer has to pay, like, €7 Euro or something when they pick it up from the post office. So it's just, it's affecting us from all angles. And I, I don't have a positive thing to say on it in any way, shape, or form. I don't have anything positive to say about where this is headed and where this is going because it feels absolutely like rudderless. It feels like no one is guiding this whatsoever. And as much as we have like really great trade bodies representing the music industry to governments, we've got a really shit government who don't, who don't care. We were trying to just stay in power and trying to just kind of save face. And they won't admit that Brexit is a mistake. Like it we're just affected in every single industry. So there's there isn't a part of music that that isn't affected by Brexit. And I wish that I could say something better. And I wish that the situation has changed since when I mentioned that in 2021, but it's worse. <laughs> That's okay. We will keep being patient and doing what we love and caring about others, support people around us. That's the best we can do for now. And I promise my very last question is way more positive. So let's forget about Brexit. The last segment of each episode is related to the title of the podcast, The Music Trick Me. And I'm really curious to hear, what are the records or artists that made you go, wow, how did they do this? Like you had to go back and listen again because you weren't sure what you had just heard. Oh my God, when that happens, it's the best thing in the world. I would say the most obvious is probably Gilliband. When we first started listening to them at Rough Trade and they had those early singles. And you just like, this is just noise. But it's just so kind of like, it's done in such a hypnotizing way. And there's something about the combination of the the way that the lads play their instruments and Dara's vocals that just like, you've got to go back for another listen because you're not quite sure what you heard the first time. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, the, the, some of Dara's like, vocal, um, some of Dara's lyrics are so abstract, but take kind of like very kind of real day-to-day objects and experiences and stuff like that and uses them in a really like strange setting so there's that that kind of hooks you in but it's also the fact that within this noise that when you watch them live it's just like it is uh, like an absolute force there's something that you could think is chaotic and you could think that, oh my God, they must just get in a room and just like go for it. But it's not. It's so methodical and, and thought out. Like every single noise and every single sound that comes out of them is so laboured over and so considered that it's it, it's possibly like one of the most artistic things that I've listened to. But it's noise. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it's yes. yeah, I I adore them. And I think. You know, there was a there was a moment when we didn't know whether they were going to release another album, and the fact that they've done two since is just like fantastic, and they've got better each time. But I love the fact that they push themselves, and like for that second album when they produced it, they you know they basically rented this like massive house in the countryside, and you can hear that in the record. You can the drums are so roomy, like it's just got this gorgeous kind of expansive sound to it. But then for the third album, they just absolutely just did the opposite. And did it back in the studio and everything is so tight and concise. And the mix on it is just, it's mind bending how, how they've done that mix. The, you know, the levels on it are just like, there's just elements that are brought to the forefront when you're not expecting them to. 
that you're just like, I haven't heard another, I haven't heard a record being mixed like that before. So yeah, I'd probably say them, but that's like a massively obvious one. But it's it's been different bands for it. Like I, I always kind of, I think I was like pinpoint different moments in my life by the bands and artists that I was listening to at that time. And I think the probably the other one other than Gillibands that has had such an impact on me, like sonically, is Sharon Van Etten, who I just think is Sharon Van Etten to me is like, not only is she one of the most kind of vivid and amazing storytellers, but also the the, the arrangements and the instrumentation of what she does is just like, I, I just find it incredibly inspiring. And it, and again, when, when you go and watch her live, you don't notice anybody else in the room. Like it is literally just like, it's like you and her. <laughs> like it's incredible. Wow. And that kind of skill is just ridiculous because she comes across in interviews and like, it's just so normal. You know, just like, so like, I don't want to say unremarkable because I think that's a horrible way of putting it, but you don't, you don't always get from like hearing her speak how spellbinding that she can be on record and that like how impactful it is. She's quite modest and kind of quite unassuming. Yeah, I think it's just, I constantly love being taken by surprise. I think that's what keeps me going and I think that, you know, sometimes when we have gigs on it at Future Yard where I've not been like mega engaged with the artist, but like there's mates that want to go or like we've all decided that we're all going to go out that night and go like and stick around Future Yard. And then you just get like, wow, like those moments are just absolutely what we do it for. But I think as well, I think at this point in my career, like one of the things that really, really like motivates me is the reaction of the audience around me. So like going to watch Gillibands, I won't just watch the lads on stage. I'll be watching everyone around me in the audience to see what they're doing. And then when you see everybody just in absolute kind of like euphoria, <laughs> like it's, that is incredible. I think that's, and that's why, you know, I'm in a, I'm in the right job, basically. <laughs> audiences. Yeah. Thanks so much. That's brilliant and send us your favorite song that we can add on the podcast song playlist so listeners can discover new music or rediscover those tracks with a new ear and realize yeah there are funny things happening on that so please feel free to share and unless you had something else to add everything we talked about was great and guys check out i saw in the jinx natalie mccool and beijo flow check out future yard where i hope to go to myself someday soon and remember, there is support out there if you need it. Surround yourself by same-minded people. I think that's the key, key thing that we can take from today. And if you need help, there are resources. There are people who are happy to share their stories and tips. There is help if you need it, when you need it. And Kath, it was so exciting to have you today. You are an inspiring and generous person. Honestly, I think the music industry is lucky to have you and we're lucky to have you today speaking to us. So thank you so much. I really appreciate Thank you for having me. It's great. <laughs> no problem. And see you in Birkenhead then. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.